Good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning, church. Um, this morning, as Rob just read, we're going to be continuing in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we will be looking at the whole of eight, and we will be talking about a better promise. If you haven't been with us maybe for very long, um, I'll give you a little uh, intro into where we've been. Toward the beginning of Hebrews, the author of this book challenges the church that they have refrained from partaking in the meat of the Christian faith. The gospel has the power to save, but it te- and it tends to be the most effective when it's shared in the simplest of ways. It doesn't need to be fluffed up or bolstered. The good news is simply the good news in and of itself. However, these believers who had been saved by the power of the good news had failed to move forward on the journey that the gospel invited them into. The gospel is the means by which we are saved, but then it is also the light that reveals the depths of the treasure we have received through Christ. The author's response to this issue amongst the church is not to water down the truths of salvation, but to lead them on a journey into its very depths, illuminating the path with the gospel and taking with him anyone bold enough to follow. For the past several weeks of this journey, the author has pounded into us the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. And in verse 1 today, we see that the first seven chapters of Hebrews have been building towards this glorious destination we see revealed in verse 1. And before I read that, I'd like to just pray for our time. Lord, thank you for this day and for uh, the glorious privilege of being able to um, not only hold your word in our hands, but to receive it in our hearts through um, your restorative work in us. Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to hear uh, that, uh, that the depths of the glorious salvation we have received would be uh, clear to us and perhaps made new to us and that it would spur us forward to live in light of the salvation we have attained through Christ. I ask all of this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. In verse 1, we see this fitting arrival as the, the journey we've been up to. It says, now, the point in what we are saying is this. So in other words, everything we've been talking about with this priesthood comparison, the point is this. We have such a great high priest. We've seen this description of this divine priesthood, and the author says we have this high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus Christ is the superior priest, and the good news is that he is ours. He is not merely a man, but God. He is not merely a priest, but a king. Earthly priests could not serve as kings, nor could kings serve as priests. But in Christ, we have the one who is able to serve in both roles perfectly for eternity. All earthly priests were a shadow of the perfect priest who made a one-time perfect sacrifice and who can advocate for us forever as he is rightfully seated at the right hand of honor next to the Father. And all earthly kings were a shadow of the perfect king. He is perfect in wisdom and majesty. And he stands in perfect holiness, but rules in perfect grace. Though he is seated at the right hand of God, he will one day come back to take his place as the rightful king of the kingdom, fulfilling the very promise 
for which we gather here today awaiting. The king priest dwells in the heavens, the author tells us here in verse 1. In the true tent of God's glory, he is in no way dependent on man, but man is fully dependent on him, and thus he is the form that casts all of the shadows we have spoken of in the weeks past. And in the verses ahead, I want us to consider those shadows, specifically in verses 3, 4, and 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the, the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God established the Levitical priesthood, and he tasked them with a noble calling, which we have discussed a good deal in the past several weeks. Their job was important because they stood in place of the people before God offering sacrifices as an atonement. Yet their priesthood was not perfect because it couldn't offer actual atonement before a perfectly holy God. That's because the priests served as a shadow of the heavenly things. They were never supposed to be mistaken for the form, yet some who are amongst the church receiving this letter have just have done just that. They missed the whole point of the service of the priesthood. Just as God established the Levitical priesthood, he also ordered the building of the temple. And if you read Exodus 25, this was quite an undertaking. Like, it can almost be a little bit uncomfortable to read Exodus 25 for the first time. God is so specific about where each item will be placed and what it will be built out of. And the priests had to wear a certain garment to enter into its presence. Like Exodus 25 can be a little odd to read at first. When you read of it, actually, it's easy to think, what is the, the point of all of this? And I, I remember reading through Exodus for the first time and thinking secretly in my head, is, is, is God vain? Like, what is this? Why does, he, why does he demand so much amongst this place being built? But the truth is that God's not vain. He's holy. And after showing Moses how the tabernacle should be constructed, he says this in Exodus 25, 40, and we see the heart behind the, command, the commands and the instructions that he gives. It says, And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In other words, the tabernacle on earth was to be modeled after the heavenly temple. The heavenly temple is perfect, and thus the temple built in its shadow needed to be as close to perfect as physically possible. That is why all of the details were so important. Now, could Moses construct such a perfect tabernacle here on the earth? By no means. But it was a shadow of the form. The pursuit of perfection that's reflected in God's instruction and in these details is meant to point to the source of the shadow, the form of the heavenly temple. Jesus' ministry, his advocacy as our high priest, takes place in this perfect temple and the sitting beside the right hand of God, advocating perfectly on our behalf. He is not dependent on the shadow that is built on the earth. And this is ultimately because 
Jesus himself is not a shadow, but he is the form from which all of our worship comes. In verse 6, he is identified as such very clearly when it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Everything else was a shadow of the form. And the covenant that he mediates is better because it is enacted on better promises. As a superior priest, he not only serves in a superior temple, but he offered a superior sacrifice, and thus he ushers in a superior promise for the people of God. The temple made by Moses was a shadow of the temple of God. The sacrificial lamb that was offered by the priest was a shadow of the perfect lamb of God. And the priests who offered that sacrifice were a shadow of that same lamb who offered himself as the perfect priest. And ultimately here in this text, what he wants the church to understand is that the covenant through which the temple, the lambs, and the Levitical priests were ordered was ultimately the shadow of a better promise, that being the gospel, God's ultimate promise. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. It's obvious now that the first covenant was not perfect. It could not ultimately save, and thus it was not faultless. But this was not so obvious in this day. And the author wants them to understand that this is why a better covenant was needed. However, to realize why the first covenant was not sufficient, we need to understand the source of its insufficiency. And in verse 8 and 9, we see this explained. Verse 8, when speaking of this better covenant, of the old covenant, why it was not faultless, he says, for he finds fault with them. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Here in this, these weighty two verses, he identifies that the problem with the old covenant was the fault that he found with the people. The fault is identified with them, that being the people of God, Israel. They were unable uh, to meet the demands of God's covenant. This is the covenant that was made with them when they came out of Egypt. And this covenant reflected both God's holiness and his desire for his people. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, gives us an overview of how this covenant worked. And the terms are striking. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the terms of God's original covenant, the Levit what we see laid out throughout the book of Leviticus, the law of Moses, is that if you indeed obey my voice and you keep my covenant, I've made it, you keep my, your end, then you shall be my treasured possession amongst the people. These were the terms. The first covenant, the Mosaic law, 
It was ultimately ineffective, Hebrews tells us. But the reason for its ineffectiveness was not because God gave bad commands. Like His commands were holy and true. The commands reflected His holiness. But the problem with the original covenant, the first covenant, was that God's people had bad, broken hearts. Within the old covenant, we see the very same character of God displayed as what we see in the new. We're not talking about two different sides of God. We're not, there's not an Old Testament God and a new. We see the same heart of God that revealed in the Old Testament as the new. There was grace and there was patience in the first covenant. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The terms of the Old Testament covenant were, if you obey and keep my commandments, but the people didn't. And as we just read to the children, God forgave them a million times. A million times he overlooked their obvious breaking of this covenant over and over again. There was a call for faith in the first covenant, like the new. Numbers 14, 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all of the signs that I have done for them. God did all of these glorious things for the people. He provided them everything that they needed. Their clothing never ran out. The Bible says their sandals never wore. Like they pro- He provided food from heaven. Over and over again, he did everything they need, desiring faith from them, but they would not give it. They continued to <laughs> turn their faith to lesser things, like a foolish cow. There was a call to faith in the first covenant. There was grace and patience in the first covenant. And there were promises of God's love in the first covenant. Exodus 34, 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Despite... God's holiness revealed fully and holding people to this perfect expectation that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. He reveals his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin over and over again as he prepared to make a way once and for all. Despite these evidences of grace, the people weren't changed for the most part. That was the insufficiency of the old covenant. This perfect law is put forth, and people just weren't ultimately changed. And this is because the covenant was made between God and a nation that included both saved and lost people. The rules required external obedience, but they did not internally change that which was ultimately broken. Obedience had to be accomplished by ritual and willpower, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, it failed over and over again again now here's the mystery of this when we read of this truth we think why did god allow things to be in such a way and the truth is that's a valid question because scripture tells us that god sovereignly withheld the spirit for that time intentionally as part of his gracious plan he withheld from them the revelation that has been given to us And this is seen in Deuteronomy 29, verses 4 through 6. Deuteronomy 29, 4 through 6 is a heavy passage where Moses is reflecting on 40 years of ministry in the wilderness. 
And in a combination of emotions that I cannot imagine, he describes the people of Israel this way. It says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 29, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Old Covenant revealed the true condition of man. Not for God. He already knew the true condition of man, but for man. This is the primary reason why the Old Testament was insufficient. The covenant wasn't like my old truck. It wasn't a, knee, uh, it wasn't a machine that was in need of repair. Its insufficiencies, that of the old covenant, were rooted in its incompleteness. It just wasn't complete. It was always the part of something larger. The old covenant was a shadow that was intended to pre- prepare God's people for the former. Through generations of rebelliousness and stubbornness, God's people were being prepared for the arrival of a better hope, one that would be ushered in by the mediator of a better covenant. And in verses 10 and 11, we see this described. This is the description of this better covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And here's the kicker in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. These words that are being referenced here in Hebrews come from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31 through 34, God spoke them. And he reveals to the people even then that he was always preparing the people for something better. That was always the point that Jesus Christ would be the perfect priest and he would bring forward a better promise, that being the good news. That God so loved the world that he would send his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that for those of us who are his, there's no longer condemnation to be had, but everlasting glory in Jesus Christ. The differences between the old covenant and the new are profound. The old covenant was thundered with fear and dread at Mount Sinai as described in Exodus 19. Reason would have it that anyone who experienced this, who saw what was taking place even from a distance, would have obeyed simply out of fear. But they sinned against the old old covenant almost immediately, like immediately, as we read in the story to the kids today. And in this, we see the real condition of man revealed. Total depravity, total self-seeking, an absolutely broken condition deep within their souls. And Jesus Christ, our perfect priest, he came to cure that condition through the life-giving medicine of the gospel. He knew the condition of man full well, and thus he knew what it is we truly needed. 
And now, because we can read of those who came, be, be, who came before, we can read of what they experienced, we can see, too, that it is which we ultimately need. We don't need clearer rules because we cannot keep them apart from the power of the Spirit. What we need is renewed hearts. And in His grace, that is what God has given us. He has written the law and the new covenant not on tablets on a mountain, but in our very hearts. And He has done this by drawing us into relationship with Himself. And Charles Spurgeon, when speaking of this unique aspect of the new covenant, he once said this, the best way to make a man keep law is to make him love the lawgiver. Therefore, we have a totally different relationship with the law to those who came before. For the child of God, our motivation is not to live holy lives so that our Father will accept us and love us. Our motivation to live holy lives is because the Father has accepted and loved us on the basis of Jesus Christ. And thus we seek to live in response to that truth, glorifying Him. And this was ultimately always the desire of God, that we might love Him with all of our heart and all our soul and all our mind. This is the point of the law summarized. Jesus Christ provides the healing needed for our hearts to respond to God in this very way. The shadow of the Old Testament was to discover sin, to condemn it, to bring forward, to bring to light that which was ultimately the charge against us. But the form of the new covenant is to declare the love, grace, and mercy of God and to give sinners repentance and eternal life through Christ's redeeming blood. The shadow was presented to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob according to the flesh. But the form is extended to all nations and races under heaven. The first covenant created the nation of Israel, and the new covenant created the church, the true spiritual Israel, a people who I believe will eventually gathered in the renewed nation of Israel under the reign of our perfect king. But that's a topic for a different time and a different day. As we close this morning, I want to focus on the glorious reality of who we've been made in Christ, that being the glorious reality of being the church. I want to consider those implications as we read the last verse in this text today. Verse 13 says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of Hebrews wants the church to understand that there is no going back. There's no going backwards. There's no running back to the ways of old. Everything has changed because of Jesus. When Christ came, the old covenant was rendered obsolete. And in the days that lied ahead, for the original readers, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, would make it abundantly clear that the old covenant has vanished away. You and I exist as Christians because of the irresistible grace that was brought forward by an irresistible priest over his beloved people. Jesus, in his grace, did not leave it up to human initiative to fulfill the new terms of the new covenant, but he did it himself 
at Calvary. And he writes his life-saving truth on the very hearts of believers, on the very hearts of his children. Going straight to the source of our brokenness, he applies that which is true and causes our eyes to see the truth and glory of the gospel. This is the salvation that unites us as a covenant people here this morning. Covenant is part of our heritage. God's will for his people is to gather in visible, humble local churches for his glory. This is what Christ ushered in when he established the new covenant. We see this in various places from all across Acts to the letters that are written to the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3, all of those churches which are very different and in local places. And these local bodies, like the one you've been called to be a part of this morning, provide support, guidance, authority, accountability, and encouragement. We operate as one small part of the larger global New Covenant Church. And our King Priest guarantees that the gates of hell will not prevail against what he is doing in his big C church amongst his beloved people. Nothing will separate us from the love of God under the covenant that he has made complete and perfect in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, describes our position in light of all that Christ has done. And I want you to, as you hear this, I want you to see the distinction between this and the covenant that is descri- the terms of the covenant described in Exodus. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is drastically different than if you obey my commands. This is Jesus Christ came on your behalf and obeyed the commands you never could because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As a church, we covenant together to honor God with our lives, not so that he will love us, but because he has loved us. He loved us not on the basis of our merit, not on the basis of what we could bring to the table of what, or how well we could do, but on the basis of all that he had done in Jesus, that we might inherit a salvation and glorify God through committing to live out the salvation we have been granted, proclaiming the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness, that we might decrease and that he might increase and be made much of over and over again throughout all of our days. This morning, I want to um, invite you uh, just to pray with me to that very end, that God might make that so in us through Jesus. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. You are incredibly gracious to mankind, and you always have been. Lord, it's humbling to consider the millions of times uh, that you showed your grace uh, on the people that came before us and the millions of times, despite all of your blessing, that they rejected you over and over again. Um, Lord, might we realize this morning that apart from you, we are the exact same. Um, That's the point. Lord, we are are not unlike them. Um, 
thus building a foolish cow is right there in my wheelhouse apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, that you did not leave us in the wilderness where you surely have le- you surely should have left us, but you didn't. In grace, you have never ceased to pursue your people and to pursue and fulfill your plans for rescuing us. Lord, might we this day bask in the glory of your redemptive plan for rescuing us. You've made a way for us, not on the basis of what we bring to the table, because what we bring to the table, Lord, is often empty-handedness and an abundance of shortcoming, but you made a way for us through the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and our Redeemer King. Lord, by your mercy, through your power, through the Holy Spirit, might not a day of our lives go by where we do not fully acknowledge with every ounce of our being the King who rescued us. Lord, remove from us any inclination to earn a salvation or create a God apart from that which is revealed in the Gospel. Might the Gospel be our hope. Might it be our better promise each and every day of our life than it might be at Seagate. Might it be the lens, Lord, through which we see all things. We make all decisions. We take every step. Lord, open our minds to the depths of the glorious salvation we've received. Let us not be like the Hebrews who uh, simply live on milk and and never really uh, take a step forward in our understanding. But Lord, would you lead us into the depths of what you have done for us? And would you not leave us unchanged as we follow you there? I ask all of this in the good name of King Jesus. Amen.